Well, good evening. It's good to see each of you here and uh, welcome our live stream listeners. I want to say again, as we try to do periodically, that our live stream uh, ministry is never supposed to be a substitute for being in the fellowship of believers. Uh, it can be a supplement. If you cannot come for, there's various reasons why people cannot get out, but uh, if you can be part of the fellowship, you should be here. So we are thankful to have a live stream. We want people who cannot be here to use it, but those who can be here, we encourage you. Why? Because scripture says in Hebrews, do not forsake the assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. So there's an emphasis in, in belonging to Jesus on the fellowship of the body. And uh, you've met Christians who say, well, I love Jesus, but I just don't belong to a church. Uh, that is offensive to Christ, to want his head and not his body. And so we need to really give consideration to belonging to the family of God. And I want to thank you for being here, church family. And let's uh, begin with prayer. Let's continue to pray for uh, what's happening down in Miami. Um, they've now moved into a search and rescue but uh, it's, it's uh, beyond probably uh, the time that pe they can find people alive. And it just moved my heart when I read that uh, some of the uh, volunteers will not go home. They want to continue to be there and search. And it just tells you that, you know, within the, the human heart, there is some good. Now, not to the point that it can save you. <laughs> uh, your goodness will never save you. But there are some good people in general. And... Uh, and I thank God for that. Let's uh, remember the families that have lost loved ones. And I guess people are still finding out, getting word that, yes, we found the remains of your loved one. And can you imagine how difficult that must be? So let's keep them in prayer. We also have several in the church and even a request tonight from someone who's not part of our church family, who's struggling with cancer. And we need to lift these folks up. This is serious. And uh, more and more, it's just amazing to me. It seems like in these days, cancer is so prevalent. And, and of course, heart conditions uh, that people have. So let's, let's pray for people tonight. And, and uh, let's keep in mind also what's happening in our nation, in the dividing of our nation, and people moving uh, away from a centered, uh, a, a strong biblical center in their life and beginning to buy into uh, false worldly belief systems. And they're all around us. And when you hear them every day, all of a sudden you start to believe them. And you, we just have to go back to the Word. Everything we do has to be measured by the Word of God, right? That's our filter. That's our, that's our mooring in a world that's gone crazy. And uh, tonight in our study, it's going to be a really fascinating study because I think we're going to be able to relate well to David and where he is and how his behavior and thinking were off course and how God uh, corrected him. And uh, we need that as well. Father, tonight we want to thank you for your goodness and for your faithfulness. The Bible clearly describes a God who has always been faithful. Never have you been unfaithful. And we're just uh, the recipients of that love and of that steadfast love and that consistency of faithfulness. And Lord, I wish we could return and say, yes, we've been faithful to you. But the reality is we fall short on a regular basis. And the beauty is that in the love and the mercy and the goodness of God, you still love us. You still forgive us, knowing that we are going to be unfaithful. But Lord, uh, it's our heart's desire, it's the bend of our heart to be faithful, to follow you, to obey you, to know you and your character and your beautiful nature, and to know that you are a God that loves us and that we are called to live in you. So Lord, the most powerful identity that a person can have is to be in Christ. And those of us who are saved are in Christ Jesus. And so no longer do we live, but Christ lives in us. And the life we now live as believers, we live by faith in the Son of God. Oh, there's so much freedom in that. And tonight, 
Minister to us by your word. May the Holy Spirit give us illumination of the text. And may we grow in the, care, in the, in the maturity uh, as believers, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Yes. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> that used to be my fear when they would put, they'd wire me to go into the baptismal pool. I'm like, no. No, 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 no. And then they would hang the mic. The, 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 the church I pastored in South Florida, they, they would have a boom mic like this and they would hang it over the water. And I said, no, set it back so that if it falls, it falls on the ground, not in the water. Look, I don't want to have a divine healing service. Okay, I'm not looking for God to do that. Uh, I'd rather just go ahead. He'd rather me walk in wisdom. So, all right, let's get started. Uh, we, we pick up where we left off last week in 1 Samuel chapter 29. We've only got a couple chapters, or three chapters left. 29, 30, and 31. Then we start 2 Samuel. And we'll actually, in 2 Samuel, pick up where David is actually the king. He's fulfilling that, uh, that wonderful calling that God gave him in a physical sense. And so, but we're going to finish out here strong in 1 Samuel. Tonight we're in chapter 29. And we, <laughs> it's an interesting time in David's life. He has really gone weird uh, in chapter 20, 27, 28, 29. I shared last week that originally God told David not to leave Judah. Way back, like in chapter 22, don't leave Judah as Saul is trying to chase you down and kill you. Trust me, stay with me. Well, David does exactly what God told him not to do. And he runs off to the Philistines, and of course, he gets there and realizes he's in danger and so he has to act like he's a madman just to escape, just to survive. All of that was his doing. God tried to forewarn him not to do it, and David went on his own. Can anybody relate to hearing and knowing where God's leading us, and yet for some reason, and sometimes we have the weirdest ways of justifying our actions and our behaviors, and we end up in a mess and uh, God, of course, in his love, is able to teach us through that, I hope. Well, David didn't learn the lesson the first time. And so now David has returned uh, to, uh, he's come back, right back to the Philistines. And, and uh, he's befriended uh, the Philistine king, Achish. And Achish has granted David his wish uh, and gives him his own town in the land of the Philistines to to be a home base, and he tells Akish that he's going out by day to the various villages in the region of Judah, uh, and he's attacking, he's raiding these villages, which are his people, and uh, that's what he tells Akish. In reality, uh, he's raiding the, the pagans, he's raiding the enemies of Israel in their small villages. And it's a pretty strong uh, uh, raid because he's going in killing all the men and women, the Scripture says. He's not leaving anybody alive. So it's pretty harsh. And Akish is thinking that David is killing off his own people. Therefore, his people probably despise him and hate him, which also means that now David's reliant upon me. I'm the only person that likes him. So Akish saw that as a bringing he and David into a closer, not relationship, but a bond uh, of an alliance. And in reality, it, it, was, the, it was Israel that was growing in their, in their admiration for David because he was taking out little villages of the enemy. So David's in the wrong place, a place that God told him not to go. He is uh, ra he's raiding the the people of that region but he is trying to carry on an alliance with the king of the philistines okay and uh 
So he's fighting against the enemy of the Philistines, and he's fighting against his own people so that they will be mad at him in truth. He's fighting against Achish's people. Now, this is where he finds himself. Uh, the city that was given him was Ziklag. That's a Philistine city. Ziklag means winding road or winding way. And that's the course that David is on. He's off on his own. He's thinking for himself. He's not obeying God. And he's going down a wrong path. And it's a winding road. And under this false friendship with a king, all of this is driven by what? By the fear of King Saul killing him. He actually makes that pretty clear. I think it's chapter 27. Let me go back and take a quick look. Maybe I'm wrong on that. In verse 1, then David said in his heart, so this is not God speaking to David. This is David in his own thoughts. Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. He's convinced that Saul's going to kill him. How is that possible? When through the man of God, Samuel, he was told that he will be the next king. He was even anointed as the next king, and the Spirit came upon him. So David has completely taken his eyes off of the Lord. He's no longer finding his strength. He's no longer finding his direction from God. He's not walking in godly wisdom. He now has turned to his own understanding, and it's taken him on a journey down a winding path or a winding road, and it's leading to nowhere except destruction. And uh, this is where David is. Now, what's interesting is God is allowing David to follow down the wrong path. God's not forcing the next king of Israel to make right choices. When someone tells you they don't believe in free will, they're, they're actually denying parts of the Bible. I absolutely believe in election and predestination because it's in the Bible. And I also believe in free will because it's in the Bible. And if you ask me how do all those things work together, I don't have a clue. There are parts of it I just don't understand. But God is not going to treat David like a robot and force him to make right choices. This is the next king of Israel, and he's making terrible choices. And God's like, go ahead. Why? Because here's what you and I need to always remember in our own life. God is in control. God is sovereign. When you speak of sovereignty, you speak of authority. God has final authority. He has given Satan a limited uh, place on the earth right now. Jesus even calls him the prince of this world. He's only the prince of this world because God allows him to be the prince of this world. And at the very end, at the return of Christ, God will, Christ himself will command Satan out of the sovereignty of God's will, he'll command him to the lake of fire. So he has authority, a little bit of authority with his demons and whatever on the earth right now. God's still sovereign. Don't ever question whether God still is in control. No matter what you see on this earth, no matter how bad it gets, all you've got to do is turn to the book of Daniel, turn to the book of Zechariah, uh, turn to uh, Revelation, turn to Matthew chapter 24, where they all speak of the end. And you'll find out real quick, God is in control. It all plays out according to His plan. And David going in the wrong direction, God is going to allow it, and God is going to use it to do a work in David. Again, David has now moved into a weird place. He's, it's as if he's, he's backslidden. He's turned to his own ways and has, has completely forgotten God's ways. Uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. I don't think it's going to be any more clear that we are to follow His leadership. It's not the other way around. Lord, let me tell you what I'm going to do, and then if you'll just bless it. 
That is not the way God works. God wants us to come to Him and to His way and His purposes and His direction and His plan. And David has rejected that. And so God says, okay, David, fine. I'll let you go the route you're going. And I'll use that disobedience to chastise you. I will chasten you. You will be disciplined. And you will grow. Because you will be the king. And, and so this is very important that we understand it as we go through chapter 29 and 30. Uh, so here's the deal. I believe that God has a perfect will for each and every one of us. Now people say, what's the will of God? Okay, in simple form, the will of God is this. Read it, know it, walk in it. This is God's will for you. You say, what's God's will? God's will is that you not kill anybody. God's will is that you seek Him and find Him while you search for Him with all your heart. God's will is that you put Him first above all things and don't worship anything else or anyone else. I mean, God makes it pretty clear what His will is. So when people say, I just don't understand the will of God, you're just indicting yourself. You're telling, you're telling me that you don't really know the Bible. The will of God primarily is not a location or a place or a person. Well, who should I marry? will is this. Listen, you obey this and what it says about marriage and about uh, uh, how to treat a spouse. And honestly, there's a lot of different folks that could fit into being your spouse who love Jesus. You, you understand what I'm saying? It's not like there's this one person and nobody else that I can possibly uh, marry and be happy with. No, if they, if they love Jesus and you love Jesus, uh, God could do a great work through that marriage. And you'll even love each other the way you should love each other. So I don't buy into that bunk that it's a place, it's a location, it's a what's the Lord's will for my occupation? What does He want me to be? Well, God can make, he, God wants you to be the best Holy Spirit-filled garbage man that the world's ever seen. He wants you to be the best Holy Spirit-filled, Bible-believing hamburger flipper at three at five guys he wants you to be the best whatever it doesn't matter this is the will of God and so there's a there's a will of God a perfect will of God and I believe David is out of that perfect will of God would you agree now because God's sovereign there is still a permissive will and I believe David's in the permissive will I think that's the case with Marrying three women. He shouldn't have married three. The God's will is that he marry one. But God doesn't strike him dead because he married three different women. I don't think it's wise. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's biblical. And I don't think God can honor that like he would if David was faithful to one wife. But that's okay. David did it. And because he did that, it was headaches for him. By the way, if you, if you want to know the truth, David was a lousy father. I mean, his own son tried to kill him. They, uh, he, honestly, he was a lousy parent because he took matters in his own hand. He did it his way. I know a lot of Christians who are lousy parents because they're, they, they, while they love Jesus, but they're going to do it their way. They're gonna, and they're not willing to look at what God says and obey it. And they, Now look, some people can obey this to the nth degree and their child still turn out to be a hellion, okay, a banshee Indian. So there's no guarantee, but I believe that if you raise your child as you should, then they'll never forget you and what you taught them from the Word. God's Word never returns void, right? So do it. Teach it. Live it. David, these are things that David was not walking in. So what's God's will for, for David? Let me, let me just give it to you real quick before we move forward. Uh, he wanted him to stay in Judah. He wanted David to remain faithful to one wife that God gives him. Uh, he wanted David to recognize how God had provided for him and protected him from King Saul. Several times Saul tried to kill him and came close. Never did. David should be remembering that. He should recognize the men that God has surrounded him with when he felt most alone. 
on the run, hiding in caves, moving out and going different places. Yet God never lifted his hand. He still provided men who would come near to David. Even a priest, Abiathar. Find your strength in the Lord for the days ahead. I mean, God gave David so many opportunities to follow his will. He was to remember the promises. He will be the next king of Israel. He's forgotten that. So rather than following the will of God, David is now out on his own, and yet God's permitting it. He's allowing it. For example, David took, again, three wives for wrong reasons. Why did he take uh, Saul's daughter? Because he thought that would put him in closer to Saul. Saul, on the other hand, was using it as a manipulative tool to kill David. But David, on his own, came up with the understanding that it's a good thing that I married the king's daughter. How about David living among the enemy of Israel? God allowed him, but that's certainly not his will. And he's done it twice now. He's taking matters into his own hands again. David jeopardizes his family and his men for personal reasons, puts them in very risky situations. Uh, David becomes discouraged because he's out on his own making his own decisions, making irrational decisions. And in his discouragement, David resorts to lies in order to stay in an alliance with the enemy of Israel, uh, the king. He has to lie to the king. How's God going to bless that? God didn't tell him to lie to, king, uh, to the king, but that's where David is. He really thinks this is his only option. So all of this will, will continue to take David further and further down the wrong path unless God steps in. I really don't know that David would have recovered if the Lord had not stepped in. But the Lord brings to David um, uh, a couple incidences that are significant. And it actually uh, reveals to David his own self-destructive behavior and thinking. And that's exactly what happens here. So let's, let's get with this. The Philistines are about to go up into uh, Judah. <laughs> They're going to leave their land south and east or west, and they're going to travel east and north and go up to Judah. Their plan, kill Saul. They heard where Saul was. They're going to trap him. They're going to come in from three sides, and again, the Philistine army is a, is a, 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 a great enemy. I mean, they are, they are better at strategic planning. They're better at weaponry. They're better at knowing how to do battles. They just are. And... Uh, and so they actually do that. They literally trap Saul. They're going to go up into the land of, of Judah and, and corner Saul, and their plan is to kill him and to overtake you know, that, those cities that they come into. Now, uh, it's interesting that the next day uh, Saul is going to die, and his sons are going to die exactly because God's sovereign. And God's judgment upon Saul is final. He made that judgment many years earlier when Samuel came to Saul and told him that he was gonna, God was going to remove his family from the throne. And, uh, and that's exactly what's about to happen. Now, it's also God's doing to bring David into this situation in order to get his full attention. David finds himself between a rock and a hard place. Is he really willing to kill his own people to impress this king of the enemy of Israel. See, what happened as we, before we start this chapter, what the backdrop is, is that Akish comes to David and says, we're going up against uh, Israel, and I want you to go into the battle with us. And David spouts off and says, well, great. I'll be able to show you what I can do in a battle. Now, was David joking? Um... Or was David that far out of his mind and not thinking rationally, and he was going to actually come against God's people? But anyway, that's that's where we that's where this thing is. And so they they come up. It says, verse one. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites <laughs> were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. And as the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands. And David and his, and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. Uh, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? 
it would have been David and 600 of his men. So 601 Hebrews is what they're referring to. And Akish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day? Now you've got the Philistine leader telling his commanders, do you not know that David has deserted his own people and come to me and he's been faithful to me? What a terrible indictment on David that the enemy of God has David as a little puppy dog. That's how this king sees David. And... Uh, and so the Philistine leaders could see what uh, they saw in David, what obviously David was blind to. Uh, David started to think and act like a Philistine. He was ready to fight with them against the people of God. But the Philistine leaders could see that that wasn't right, even when David couldn't. See, David identified himself so much with the ungodly that Akish knew he had David in his pocket. David would have never slipped into that sinful place if he remembered who he really was and what his destiny was. So God had to use the enemy to remind David who he was. Now, I know that at times we can watch someone go into a backslidden state and we'll make statements like this, well, I don't know how in the world that person got where they are. How in the world did that happen? Like, we can't relate. Um, when you take your eyes off of the Lord and you start making decisions out of your own thinking and you start lining up with pagans, you can easily end up where David is. And David doesn't see it. It's the enemy who sees it and goes, hey, what's he doing here? He belongs to God. Those are his countrymen. We're going to take him in the battle. While we're in the middle of the battle, he's going to turn and start fighting us because it's going to come to him what's going on. These guys, listen, they're wiser than David is acting right now. He really is in a tailspin. But the commanders, verse 4 of the Philistines, were angry with, with Akish. <laughs> Excuse me. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. Okay, send him back down to that little place that you gave him to live. I mean, David's just a little, he's like a puppy dog to the Philistines. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he becomes an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to, the, to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens, uh, uh, ten thousands? So the faith-filled victory over Goliath seemed to be a distant memory for David. But it is still very fresh in the minds of these commanders of the Philistine army. And so they're not buying it. And they basically tell Akish, we will not go up to battle with this guy. You need to send him back. Then Akish, verse 6, called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest to me. It seems that right that you should march out and in and in with me in the campaign. Well, first of all, that's not true. David hasn't been honest with Akish, okay? But that's what he thinks. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to, to me this, to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you, so go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the Lord of the Philistines. The lords of the Philistines. Now, that's not the truth. It is the truth, Akish is being honest about it, but this is really about God. God is the one who I believe is blocking David from going up against Israel. God is the one who's found a way to send him back away from the battle. And David said to Akish, but what have I done? What have you found in your, in your servant? Are you kidding me? This is the next king of Israel. He thinks his identity is a servant to the Philistine pagan king. 
from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the King? What? Your king, your Lord, is, is Akish? And Akish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. <laughs> Nevertheless, I mean, what does he know about the angels of God? Nevertheless, the commander of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then rise early in the morning with the, ser with your, with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So David, this warrior who battled against Goliath as a boy, a shepherd, is now nothing but a in servitude to the Philistines and he's ordered to go back to the land of the Philistines. i got to believe that the Holy Spirit of God, who came upon David the day that he was anointed to be the next king of Israel, is trying to say, David, that is not your home. Do not go back. Go north. But see, he can't. Because David's made some decisions on his own. He's put himself in a position where now he has wives He's got to go back for his wives. He's got to go back for the men that he has brought with him. Their wives, their children are back in the land of the Philistines. They shouldn't be there to begin with. It's like one sin leads to another, and now you find yourself engulfed by all these difficult, terrible situations, and you can't just walk away. It's not easy to walk away. It'd be like somebody who knows the Lord, loves Jesus, and then they come to this point where they're just lonely. And some guy comes along and feeds a line to this gal, how much he loves her. A line, L-I-N-E, let me spell it for you, is an L-I-E. When a boy gives a girl a line that somehow he loves her and he's actually wanting something in return for his love, he's lying. He's lying. He does not love her. He's willing to sacrifice the respect for her and feed his own ego, his own lust. And David has done that. David has taken his own wives, and now he's got family in that land. He can't just walk away any more than a woman who takes the line from some young guy. She knows better, but she's lonely. She doesn't necessarily feel that she... <coughs> is good enough to deserve a right guy, so she ends up with this guy. And this guy never goes to church. Not that church saves anybody, but he doesn't want to... They don't have in common the most important thing, God. She has to live with that the rest of her life unless the Lord saves this man. Don't think it doesn't happen to us. What David... What's happened to David does happen to us when we step outside of God's perfect will. And I think that's the point here. So David thought he couldn't be happy unless he was in that land. That's what he said back in chapter 27, verse 1. And then David said in his heart, let me read it for you again in that verse, now I shall perish one day at the, by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Nothing better than that. Wow. What are you thinking? What are you looking at? Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. David's got it all figured out. So what's happened? He's joined with the enemy, and now he's in a complete mess. The worst place for any child of God to be. He had, to, he had too much of the world in him to be at peace with the Lord, and he had too much of the Lord in him to be at peace in the world. God spoke to David through this, but David had to listen to get it. So through the experience, you would think David would recognize what God's Spirit is saying to him. You don't belong here. This isn't your identity. This isn't your future. 
return home. I believe all the events that were, uh, that were coming on, on David now are wake-up calls. Isn't that wonderful that God loves us so much that when we continue to make one mess after another, we make wrong decision after decision, yet God still comes after us. He loves us. And with every temptation, He provides, the Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 10, a way of escape. But are you listening? David wasn't listening. So, God took it up a notch. Now David will listen. Things are about to get real for David. Now, verse 1 of chapter 30. When David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. That's David's town. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David's made one bad decision after another. God's tried to warn him, trying to wake him up. So finally God allows this to happen in order to try to shake David out of his, his spiritual slumber. Remember when God told Saul to completely wipe out the Amalekites in battle? And he came back and he had King Agag with him. And Samuel walks up and says, what's this bleeding of sheep that I hear? Oh, those are the choicest of the animals of Agag's people. I've, I've saved them. The men, he said, the men saved them. We'll, we'll offer them to the Lord for, for a great sacrifice. And he spared the king. Because the king wasn't killed immediately and he made it all the way back to Israel or back to the land where David was coming from, he thought, I'm out of the woods. It's all good. I'm going to live. So while, while Samuel, the man of God, is questioning David, King Agag is standing there smiling. I'm here. I'm good. Everything's fine. And uh, he said, uh, go get me a sword. And the man of God chopped that king up in pieces. Because to disobey God, God knew what would happen if the Amalekites continued to live. Now, that was not the only Amalekites that were in that battle that uh, Saul was going into. But God knew the Amalekites would love to annihilate the, Israel. And now here... David goes off to supposedly go to battle, comes back, shouldn't be in the whole thing to begin with. He comes back, and now the place where his family, his men's families live, they're all gone. The city's burned down. Uh, so there's a touch of the Lord's poetic justice in all this because David brought this exact type of raid upon other cities in that area. Only difference is he killed all the men and women. But the Amalekites didn't. And now I believe that this whole event is, is God's doing. God is the one that allowed it to happen and He probably instructed it to happen. And, but He didn't allow the Amalekites to kill the, men and, or the women and the children of David's men. Now here's the point. When God does discipline us, Aren't you thankful that he doesn't go full bore in that discipline and take us out? He is a gracious, loving God that even when he disciplines, there's a tenderness to him. Wanting to teach us the lesson for sure, but he shows kindness and tenderness. Don't you just love that about God? I mean, all of us had a father, an earthly father. Some of you might never have known him. Maybe he was out of the picture before you were old enough to remember. But I'm thankful that my heavenly father has that characteristic, that he shows grace and kindness and compassion even when he disciplines me. 
He's certainly doing that for David. David didn't deserve it. What David deserved was the same thing he gave to others. God didn't do that. God didn't do it. So David made his living as a bandit, raiding and robbing cities, but the only difference is when David attacked the city, he didn't leave any man or woman alive. The Amalekites showed more mercy than David did, and they're the enemy. That's what happens when you're drifting from God. Others who aren't even saved look more righteous than you. That's why people say all the time, you know, they'll say, well, why do I want to be a Christian? I watch that guy. Look at this guy. He didn't claim Jesus. And man, he, he's compassionate and loving and kind and honest and trustworthy. Happens all the time. Somebody said, I've never met a person yet who was sorry that he was a Christian. But I've met a lot of sorry Christians. David was a sorry Christian. But here's the wonderful truth. Look at verse 4. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. I try to picture that. To weep so hard, so long, that you have no energy left. Have you ever been there? It's very possible that you have. Life is not fair. Life is not, not easy. And it can leave us in that kind of a state of emotional depletion. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. I'll tell you what David was. He was depressed. For the people spoke of stoning him. Because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. So all these men who've been following David, even following him down into live among the enemy, they followed him. Now they followed him to go fight against their own countrymen. And on the coming home, they found out that the enemy came behind their backs and took their family. They're upset with David. And probably not just because of the, the, the lack of wisdom in the decision to leave the family behind, but the fact that he's not following God. Not all of them. Some of them were ruthless men. Some of them were just scoundrels. But there are probably a few there that are pretty upset with David. Why are you in the place you're at? And now look what's happened. They're ready to stone him to death. You know what you stone him for? For rebelling against God. You completely disobeyed God as a leader, and now we're all suffering because of it. And they came within a few miles of their city, the hearts of David and his men, heavy because as they look up, all they see is a fire. They see smoke. It's black smoke. And it's more smoke than just having a cookout. <laughs> and as they get closer, they realize. Can you imagine how they took off running? And they come into the city and there's no one. It is now... They left that place with their families saying goodbye, sending hugs and waving. They come into a ghost town. You bet they want to take David out. At this point, everything that David was holding on to was taken from him. He no longer had support from anyone. He's completely alone. God has put him in this place. No one in Israel can help him. The Philistines didn't want him. We don't want you in battle. Get out of here. Go back to the place the king put you. His family was gone. All he owned was gone. His spoils from the battles that they had taken from other villages in the area, that spoil was gone. Even his friends turned against him and spoke of stoning him. Every support system that David had in his life was taken from him. Only one left. The Lord, the only one he ever really needed. <laughs> That's a good place to be, folks. To come to that place of recognition when you're so far from God that the reason you're there is because you built your little castle, your little empire, and it has completely collapsed, and everybody that was your best friend has now left you. You have nothing. You're alone. But... God. He 
He's still there. He still loves you. So God kicked all the legs of the chair uh, out from under the chair, and the chair came crashing down. Now all David had is the Lord himself. And he finally snaps out of this funk, this weird place that he's been living out of disobedience. And all of this, of course, is God's doing. Verse 6, but David, so when he comes to his senses, look what it says, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He had nothing else, but he had the Lord. So what did he do? He strengthened himself in the Lord. Why would God strengthen a backslidden, wayward David? Because, because God is so rich in mercy and grace, and because David was now completely broken, ready to be filled. Sometimes we think we can achieve this and that, and I'm going to go after it. And because of that, you don't, need, you don't think you need God's strength and blessing. So God pulls back and says, oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, that's a great idea. Do it. But David has come to the end of that mess, and he realizes how much he needs God's strength. And when David comes to realize that he needs God, he turns back to God, and God answers him. That's the beauty of God. When you truly come with a contrite heart, it's amazing how God is ready to help you, to strengthen you, to lift you. He received the strength because he finally saw how weak he really was, and God's strength flowed through him. Before this, he didn't see himself as weak, but after coming to home to a burned-out ghost town, David now realizes, I am nothing, and everything I thought I was doing that was so good is weak at best. And he needed God's strength. It's important at this point uh, to make the point that David didn't wait for someone else to strengthen him. He didn't say, okay, Lord, if you want to strengthen me now, go ahead. I, I, I. No. It says he strengthened himself in the Lord. He completely, wholly gave himself to God. That's a complete surrender in that moment. Lord, whatever you want to do, here I am. This idea of strengthening himself in the Lord wasn't some kind of a rah-rah cheerleader kind of positive thinking mumbo-jumbo. This was actually David crying out before God saying, unless you bail me out of this mess, I'm done. I recognize that my best is nothing compared to you. God immediately strengthened David for recognition. He strengthened him for brokenness. He strengthened him for repentance. He strengthened him for determination to win back what the enemy had stolen. This is the same strength that would raise Jesus from the dead. And it's the same strength that you have access to every day. All you have to do is surrender to God. Some of you have done that in your life. You've come through extremely difficult situations. Many times it's our own doing that gets us there, right? But God loves you, and He came after you, and you surrendered, and He strengthened you in that moment. And he gave you new hope. He gave you a new purpose. I love that about our God. He specializes in broken, busted, wounded, shattered, splintered, annihilated people. That's, that's His forte. People who think they've got it together, who are always walking around like they're so righteous. Jesus said, I didn't come to help righteous people and well people. I came to help the sick. I came to help those who know that they're lost without me. That's where David's at. So how did David strengthen himself in the Lord? What did he do? Well, verse 7 gives us the clue. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So that Abiathar brought the ephod to David. Now, we've talked about the ephod. It's something that was, that was literally on uh, the, the chest piece uh, that the priest would wear. And I want you to notice the progression, though, here, because this is real important that we see this. Um, David strengthened himself in the Lord. He surrendered to the Spirit. Now, 
David is going to inquire of the Lord. So he goes from strengthening himself in the Lord, in other words, having courage again, the Lord's courage, not his own confidence, but confidence in God. Now he's going to inquire of God. So David sought God with the help of the priest. Almost certainly the priest was using the Urim and Thummim that were part of that priestly ephod. And when David inquired of the Lord, he probably asked Abiathar to use the Urim and the Thummim. And, and it came back, David was asking, should, what, do we, what do we do? Should we go after those who've taken the spoils and taken our families? And the Lord came back, yes, pursue them, go. And so you see first David getting confidence in God. Now David's asking the Lord, what do you want me to do? What's your plan? Forget about mine, I've made a mess, but I'm all ears, God. You, I've got Mickey Mouse ears on now. So tell me what you want me to do. And God told him, pursue, go after him. God didn't offer up a lot of details. He never does. Some of us are like, Lord, you got my full attention. You know, I'm broken over this and I've made a mess. Lord, just whatever you tell me to do, I'll do. And God says, okay, do this. Take the first step this way. And you're like, okay. Now, Lord, when I take that step, what's going to happen? What's supposed, you know, and Lord, what will the next step be? If you could give me maybe the first 20 steps, let me see that. That would really help me. No. A person who's surrendered and broken doesn't look for step two. Listen, people who are completely desperate don't make a lot of demands. Desperate people don't see themselves as having rights. They're desperate. Just tell me what to do. Okay, blind man, I want you to stand there for a second. Let me reach down here. And he spit on the made mud, put it in the man's eyeballs in order for him to see. Did the man say, what are you doing? I feel mud. I feel something wet and slimy in my eyeball. No, no. He let Jesus do whatever Jesus wanted to do. Desperate people don't make demands. And that's when God moves. When we have our hands out of here doing our thing, well, Lord, if you'll give me step two, or maybe, okay, give me step one, and then I, I think I can figure it out from there, and here you are. And the Lord's saying, no, 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 look here. This is you. Your hands are back here. Lord, what do you want me to do? Step one, and then all of a sudden, you take the step in faith and obedience, not knowing where it's going to lead, and God begins to open the next door, the next thing. And now you are literally walking with the Lord. <laughs> that, that's what it means to walk in the Spirit instead of walking in the flesh. So the Lord told him exactly what to do. Uh, verse 8, And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? What Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, uh, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued. He and 400 men, to 200 stayed behind for they were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. Now, there's a lot in that, but here's the thing. David took step one. God said, pursue. So he heads out. Has no clue where the, where the enemy is. He doesn't know, but he steps out. And as he steps out, um, he has all 600 men. They get to the brook, and not all the men can cross. They're too weak to cross. So they stay. 400 go with David further. And David continues to pursue. God told David to go and pursue them. David did exactly what God said. He obeyed. And oftentimes, obedience is really a simple step. We make it so complicated. It's not. Obedience is a simple step. Also notice, before David sought the Lord, his men were all ready to kill him. Now it says that as soon as David headed out, those men were with him. What was the change? They saw David strengthen himself in the Lord repent of his sin, and they saw David inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said, go, pursue. So guess what? The men are saying, David's now back with the Lord. 
we support him again. Sometimes the answer to your problem that you've been facing that you think is a, a insurmountable, there's no way I can get through this, is you just take step one and obey the Lord, whatever he tells you to do. And amazing how other things fall into place. You never even have to deal with them. I'm, I, so many times in my life, that's how it worked. Uh, instead of trying to deal with all these different matters and just blowing me up in my mind, Lord, what are you saying? And just take step one. And as I'm just being faithful to do that one thing, little by little, all of a sudden, these things start working themselves out. And I find that I'm not even having to deal with some of them. You ever been there? How the Lord works that way? It's wonderful. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue? And yep, go get him. So he took off. Then they found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. And they gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two, <coughs> two clusters of raisins. And by the way, their figs and raisins didn't taste anything like ours out of Publix. I mean, this is the good stuff. I actually had someone bring me. They were in the Holy Land. They brought me back some dates. And I'm not talking about when you go out with a girl. I'm talking about the ones you buy at the Publix. But these were from Israel. And I'm telling you, I'd never eaten dates like this. Wow. And so some of you have been to Israel. You know what I'm talking about. You, you've got a, a leg up on us. But uh, interesting that he, they, they gave this man food to restore him. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David and the 600 men who now are pursuing the Amalekites, took time, even though their wives and children are missing, and they don't know where the enemy is, so they're in pursuit. They took time to stop and show kindness to a stranger. That's when you know someone's heart has changed. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites and against uh, that which belongs to Judah and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. This guy was part of the attack. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And see, here's the thing. The Amalekites... They knew that the Philistines left their land and go up to, go up to Judah to fight Israel. And so they knew. These guys are just a bunch of little, you know, they're like those little sharks just looking for a free meal. When I used to dive off of Palm Beach, so uh, I would shoot, you know, a fish. Maybe it's a trigger fish. They're stupid. I mean, trigger fish are the stupidest fish in the ocean. You could go right up to a trigger fish. He's standing right here looking at you. They're wonderful. There, there have been times I've taken my, my spear gun, and literally, I, he's so close, I had to hold it back here with my hand on my trigger to hit him. <laughs> and I'd get two or three triggers, and then I would start heading back up, and I'd do my safety stop 15 feet below the surface. And these little sharks, like little dogs, and my stringers hanging off of me, these fish, and they're just swarming around me looking. They're wanting to take what I've got without earning it. They're just little just stealer, little thieves. And, of course, I would just take my stringer and pull it up and hold it like this, and then they would take off. It's kind of funny. But uh, that's what the Amalekites are like. They're just looking for a free meal, okay? And so now they're partying. woo we got everything. That was the great timing of a raid, you know. They're all gone. We took everything. We're awesome, you know, having a great time. And David's... And so... Uh, uh, and when he had taken them down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. 
and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. So David, wise now, no longer being stupid, David, he let them party. They're out partying hard and drinking all the liquor, and now they're all sauced up, and he says, now let's go take them. And they did. And uh, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. Did God not say that? He'll get it all back? And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and the herds and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. So if you remember now, the Amalekites didn't just hit Ziklag. They hit, they hit uh, villages in, in Judah, and then they went down and hit villages in, in, among the Philistines. And David's was one of them. So these guys had tons of spoil that didn't belong to David, but David took all the spoil. He, he, he got more than he deserved. Isn't that interesting? What did he, David deserve? Nothing. He had disobeyed God. He didn't deserve anything. God showed kindness and love and grace. Even while he was disciplining David, David returned to the Lord, and now God blesses him beyond anything he can imagine. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor, And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And then when David came near to the people, he greeted them. And then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David. So see, some of those guys of the 400, they weren't good guys. These were some pretty, these were rascals, scoundrels from Israel that joined up with David. Not all of them, but some of them. And they said, because these guys did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead his wife and children and depart. That's the only thing you get. You get to leave with your wife and kids. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who go, uh, for as his share is who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. Everybody gets the same thing. The share shall alike. They shall share alike. I'm sorry. So it's God's spoil, David's recognizing. And so we're not going to do take this matter into our own hands. This is the Lord's spoil, and God's going to give it to everybody. We're going to share it with everyone. I love that. Now, that is not a push for communism. There are, you'd be surprised, some of the liberal theologians will take that verse right there and say, see, communism, socialism, that's the way it ought to be. No, that's not what it's saying. In fact, that's what got Israel, or the Jews in trouble in Jerusalem, uh, when the Holy Spirit showed up and the church started. It grew so fast, they were giving everything away and to anybody who had need, which is good. But it left them destitute. Paul had to run around to all the churches in Asia Minor asking for money to help because they were in serious trouble. They'd given everything away. And I, I think that in this case, God's saying, all of you are in a difficult place. Therefore, everybody ought to benefit from the spoils that I have provided. And I love that. Spurgeon said it this way, C.H. Spurgeon. He said, you little faiths, you despondencies, you much afraids, you feeble minds, you that sigh more than you sing, you that would not, you that would but cannot, you that have a great heart for holiness but feel beaten back in your struggles, the Lord shall give you His love, His grace, His favor, as surely as He gives it to those who can do great things in His name. Isn't that wonderful? That's how we ought to approach church every Sunday. Open your eyes and look at the people coming in, and you know, it's just our nature to measure people out. Well, look at him. Look at her. Oh, my goodness. And they don't deserve. Uh, they, they shouldn't even be here. And the Lord's like, oh, no, my mercy and my grace, my love is for everyone. Reach out with God's love and love everybody. The, the very people that are pushing for critical race theory, that are pushing this racism that's so wrong, 
Jesus died for them too. We don't have a place to hold back and try to measure out. That's the Lord's work. And what the Lord does is love them. We should love them. We should love them. I remember when we were uh, had been teaching and uh, the LGBTQ community listened to the sermons, a couple sermons that I preached, and I became about as popular with them as a screen door on a submarine. And uh, they made the attempt to come to our church, stand out there by the road, and, and uh, you know, picket. And anybody coming by had to look at the signs, and they were going to dress in drag and every other way and try to make a big scene. And so the leadership met at the church, and what should we do, Pastor? We're going to, we'll hire these police, we'll have these... I said, no, here's what we're going to do. Let's make sure we have a couple huge uh, coolers with water bottles, cold, ice-cold water bottles. And if they meet out there, let's take those big coolers out and let's pass those out to them. I'm going to tell you the truth. This is just me. I never served in the armed forces. If I had, I would have served gladly for those people to have the freedom to do what they were doing, even though I totally disagree, diametrically opposed to their position. But I would have fought for them. Well, Christ did that for all of us. He died for all of us. So we should love people that are difficult to love. And the truth is, you're probably difficult to love too. <laughs> Not you, Gordon. Not you. Some of us more than others. I marvel that my wife puts up with me. Uh, okay, uh, we're done with chapter 30. Next week, it'll be chapter 31 uh, and, and maybe chapter 1. And you know what? I'm going to be here next week. So I'll cover 31 and 1, and then we'll be in chapter 2 the following week. Um, I will be heading out to Chicago that week with my wife to see our daughter and her family. We're going to go out. The first time that we, they bought a home a year ago, we haven't seen it yet. So we're going to go out and, and uh, spend just five days with them. And we'll be back for the weekend, but we're going to go out and do that. So I'm not sure who's going to preach yet. Be praying that God will uh, raise up the right person to do it. <laughs> I've already asked him. <laughs> not to put Scott on the spot, but... <laughs> But we really uh, just, this is exciting. I'm, I'm so thankful that we're in Samuel, the study of the kings. There's so much to learn. And I hope tonight you don't walk away thinking, oh, I got David figured out. Hope you walk away going, man, I've got a mess in my life. <laughs> I'm, I'm a whole lot like David. <laughs> uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and thank you for each person that's here tonight. Everybody that's here belongs and everybody, it's important that we love each other, that we care for each other, and that we love those who can't be here and go out of our way to express that love to them. And that we would be the church that Jesus, you died for. A church that's so filled with the love of God that we just can't stop loving one another, caring for one another, sharing with one another, ministering to one another, and even holding one another accountable. May we be that church. In Jesus' name, amen.